0: Episode 40, The Hundred Years' War. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Okay, so in my original plan for the flow of the podcast, I wasn't going to even talk about The Hundred Years' War but the more I looked at what was going on in European history, the more I felt like it was worth talking about. Why? Well, the Hundred Years' War lasted 100 years, but it also happened at a crucial time. It was kind of the last thing that happened before the Renaissance spread to England and to France. And it really set the stage for those two countries to have their own renaissances, and it set the stage for the Reformation to eventually spread to England, the not really to France. It kind of marked the end of feudalism, kind of, in England and France, and it basically established the boundaries and monarchies of modern England and modern France. Plus, Joan of Arc, the Battle of Agincourt, and the first modern use of artillery in battle. Spoiler, the side with the artillery wins. So before this podcast gets to the Reformation, which is a really big deal in northern Europe, felt like I should talk about the Hundred Years' War. Now, some pedantic historians will point out that this was technically the first Hundred Years' War, because France and Britain had a second Hundred Years' War that happened about 200 years after the first one. But other even more pedantic historians would dispute that the second one was really a war. It was more of a hundred years of on-again, off-again battles. But that's kind of what the first one was too. I guess we'll make up our minds when we get to it but we do have a lot to talk about about both of them because the Second Hundred Years' War had a big impact on the American Revolution. Anyway, the First Hundred Years' War started in 1337. So, yes, we're going back in time. It's back before the High Renaissance and also back before Gutenberg. Yes, I know we're going backwards a bit here, but it didn't end until 1453. 1453 which was within the time frame of the Renaissance, and it ended actually right about the time that Gutenberg was making his first printing press. So, to get the flow straight here, I know we're jumping around a lot, right? The Renaissance started in Florence about 1250. The Hundred Years' War started about 1337, before the Renaissance had really spread to either France or England. Then in 1450, Gutenberg got his printing press going. Then in 1453, the Hundred Years' War ends. And then in 1495, a bit later, the High Renaissance starts, and that lasts until 1520. You might have also noticed that there's a crucial date there that we sort of skipped over, and that is 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So we've really got a lot going on here in the late 1400s, and you can see why my sequencing is is kind of wonky. Really, I put the High Renaissance episode in the wrong place chronologically, but conceptually it fit better right after an episode on the Renaissance, since both of those were centered on Italy and on art, but doing that jacked up the chronological flow, as you can see. Anyway, back to 1337. The Hundred Years' War was a whole series of different military and naval battles between England and France, mostly due to the fact that the English monarchy had holdings on the mainland in what is now France. Now, this goes all the way back to William the Conqueror, who was from Normandy in France, and once he won the English throne, this was back in 1060 AD, a long time ago, the English king held lands in both England and France. Alright, so what sets up the stage for the conflict? In 1328, the French king died without a male heir. The English king at the time was Edward III, and he claimed the French throne because his mother was the French king's sister. I think that made him the French king's nephew, but it's actually kind of a shaky claim to the throne, and the French nobles did not agree to it. So they gave the throne to the king's cousin, Philip. So we've got our first two antagonists here in this war, King Philip of France and King Edward III of England. So since some of Edward's lands were in France, he was technically a vassal to the King of France. A vassal is a nobleman who is the landowner of any of the king's land, like the Duke of Cambridge is actually a vassal to the King of England, right? So Edward was a vassal to King Philip, but he didn't like it. Neither did Philip. In 1337, Philip confiscated William's land in Gascony, which is in southwestern France, sort of along the coast. And William said, Nope, not going to take that. And he took those lands back by force. And the war was on. In 1340, Edward took a fleet across the English Channel. And he almost completely destroyed a larger French fleet, which gave England control of the English Channel for many years. In 1346, Edward sailed back across the Channel again with a large army, and this time he landed in Normandy, and he captured several cities there, including the important port of Calais, which the English held for the rest of the war. They even held that port into the 1500s, well after the war was over. There was a significant battle in northwest France at Crecy, where the French army was destroyed. So the end of the first part of the Hundred Years' War saw the English mostly winning and in control of some of the old lands of the Norman kings. There was an eight-year break in the war at this time due to a very significant outbreak of the Black Plague, which affected both France and England. But by 1355, the outbreak was over and both sides began to recover. So King Edward's son... Prince Edward, who was also known as the Black Prince, led a large raid across the channel and over into northwestern France in 1355. He wasn't trying to capture land, he was just pillaging and plundering, and he was very successful, plundering more than 10 large French towns and cities. Outside the town of Poitiers, they finally met a French army, and the English soundly defeated the French, and they captured the new French king, whose name was King John. King John was taken back to England and held captive, and his heir, Charles, Charles V, was put on the throne. A bit later, Edward invaded France again, and he tried to capture the city of Rheims, and Rheims was the city that had a cathedral in it that had been the traditional site for the coronation of the French king. But, Edward was unable to capture Rhymes, and so he moved on to Paris, but he was unable to capture that either. So he went on to the large town of Chartres, but on the Monday after Easter in 1360, a freak hail and lightning storm struck the English camp outside of Chartres, killing over a thousand men. There was no battle. It was just a thousand men died from the lightning and hailstorm. It was the worst English defeat so far, and it came at the hands of a storm. Many of the English took it as a sign, and Edward eventually signed a peace treaty that stopped the fighting and gave back King John to the French. Now, as a condition of King John being returned, though, several other French hostages, including a couple of John's sons, were taken into English territory. Now, one of John's sons, Louis, escaped from his captivity in Calais, and so... Incredibly, King John, when he found out about it, he felt like it was his honorable duty to deliver himself back to English captivity. So he went back to England. Okay, that's honorable, but it's kind of stupid, too. Then there was a stretch of peace. And then more fighting started in 1373. There's a series of smaller battles and naval skirmishes, including a good bit of piracy being done by both sides. But then the king of France, who at this time was Charles VI, went stark raving mad. Right? He was known as Charles the Crazy. He wasn't removed as king, though. His uncle and his brother kind of took charge and ruled in his stead. But there was a lot of division among the French nobles. At that point, the English king was now Henry V. And he sent envoys to France to demand that they recognize certain English territorial holdings in France and to demand the hand of Crazy Charles's daughter, Catherine, in marriage. Now, if he had gotten Catherine to marry him, that would have put him in line for the French throne. And the French nobles rejected his demands. So, as they did back in the day, Henry sailed to France with an army. And in August of 1415, he met a much larger French army, near the town of Agincourt. In the famous Battle of Agincourt, the French army was almost completely annihilated, and many French nobles were killed or captured. The battle was basically won by the English longbow archers. Henry set up his army across a narrow valley, with sort of woods on either side going up the hills. Along the wood line, on either side, Henry set up his archers. The valley also was muddy, which made it difficult for the heavily armored French knights to walk through. The French advanced into the valley, and they met the English line, which fell back a bit, but then it stiffened, and it stopped the French advance. At this point, the French were in a bit of a bottleneck, and they had been squeezed sort of out of their formations, The English longbow archers started raining arrows down on them from both sides, and the trapped French troops lost all discipline, and they had trouble regrouping in the mud. When the archers ran out of arrows, they charged the French formation from both sides with axes and mallets. The exhausted French, struggling with the mud and their heavy armor, were unable to cope with this, and many were killed before the French army actually completely surrendered. So many French soldiers were taken prisoner that day that they actually outnumbered the surviving English army. So Henry ordered many of them executed out of fear that they would simply run back to the battlefield and rearm themselves and reattack the now-exhausted English army. So the Battle of Agincourt was a great English victory with about 6,000 French dead while only about 100 English soldiers died. It's this battle that's recounted in Shakespeare's play Henry V with its famous speech by Henry before the battle. It's called the St. Crispin's Day speech because the battle takes place on St. Crispin's Day. The end of Henry's speech goes like this. From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me "'shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile, "'this day shall gentle his condition. "'And gentlemen in England now abed "'shall think themselves accursed "'that they were not here, "'and they will hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us "'upon St. Crispin's day.'" Honestly, it's one of the best scenes in all of Shakespeare. Kenneth Branagh does a great job of it in the movie version of Henry V. So the battle was a huge victory for the English, and the English were basically in charge of the war for a while, besieging many important French cities and threatening to completely capture literally all of France. But things are about to change. And what was the change? Well, a young girl decided to help. In 1428, the English had surrounded the important city of Orleans and had cut the city off, but they didn't have enough men to actually capture it, so they just besieged it and surrounded it. But in that same year, 1428, a 17-year-old girl named Joan presented herself to the French king and she told him that she had been given a vision by God and that that vision told her she should go to Orleans and defeat the English. This was Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc was not from a town called Arc. She was from Domremy in the northeast of France. She got the name Joan of Arc because her father's name was Jacques d'Arc, So she was known as Joan d'Arc, which got mistranslated into English as Joan of Arc. Anyway, King Charles was convinced of her purity, her devotion, and her visions, so he sent her to Orleans. She arrived with a few followers, bearing a large banner that she held up on a spear. The banner was a big white flag with the French royal fleur-de-lis on it and figures of Jesus and Mary. Her arrival instantly raised the morale of the troops. And whenever there was fighting, she rode out in armor to be near the troops. She didn't do any fighting. She wasn't commanding anything. She was just there near them for moral support. But wherever she showed up, the French troops had success. Soon, the French forces, encouraged by Joan, went on the offensive and they drove the English away from the city. The French captured several towns that had been held by the English, including the main English stronghold. Now, while holding her banner during the attack on that stronghold, Joan was hit in the neck by an arrow, and she was taken away for medical help. But then she returned, and her return roused the final French push that took the English stronghold that really broke the siege of Orleans. The French, along with Joan, pursued the English army, and at the Battle of Pate in June of 1429, the French finally defeated a major English army. Now, Joan went back to the king and encouraged him, King Charles, that was who it was at the time, to finally go to Rheims and be officially crowned king, which he had not done because the English had prevented him from getting to Rheims. So in July of 1429, King Charles V was officially crowned the king of France, and Joan was given a place of honor at the ceremony. Joan continued to accompany the French armies as they fought around France. But in 1430, the Royal Army began a fight against the Burgundians, who were allies of the English. And in that battle, Joan was captured. She was moved to a castle near Noyes, but she escaped. She was then recaptured and moved to another castle, where she tried to escape again by jumping out of a 70-foot-high window. She was injured, but she survived. Eventually, the English paid the Burgundians to deliver her to them. She was taken to the English stronghold of Rouen, where she was put on trial for heresy and blasphemy and for being plagued by demonic visions. The trial was a bit of a sham, and it didn't follow normal court procedures, either English or French, and Joan was then imprisoned. And then, on May thirtieth, 1431, at the age of 19, she was taken out of prison and she was burned at the stake. The French Catholic Church would later overturn her conviction as a heretic, and soon she was coming to be seen as a saint, and eventually seen as one of the patron saints of France. She was officially recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church in 1920. She was an incredibly interesting person, and maybe she deserves her own podcast episode, but this is already getting kind of long. Anyway, Joan of Arc made a huge difference in the French fortunes during the war, but just after her the French began to use something that made an even bigger difference. Cannons. The English had first used cannons in the war back in 1436, but they weren't very reliable and they weren't very big. But the French did a better job of developing the technology, and they soon had cannons that were able to break down the walls of a castle and other artillery that could be used against soldiers. In 1453, the French soundly defeated the English at the Battle of Castillon, mostly because of the effective use of French artillery, which caused a large number of English casualties. Now, the Battle of Castillon is considered the last battle of the Hundred Years' War, but it's also considered to be the first battle that really was won because of artillery. After this, the English didn't control any territory in France, except for the city of Calais. Several English kings down through this war had tried to take control of the territory in France to join England and France into one monarchy. But in the end, what happened was that the two distinct monarchies emerged as totally distinct from one another. And now England and France were completely different countries, and they both kind of hated each other. So the basic boundaries of modern England and modern France were settled by the Hundred Years' War. England became more of a unified country and more English and France also became more unified and more French. In England, people stopped using the French language, although a lot of French words remained in it. If you happen to be a student of English and you run across a word that isn't pronounced like most English words, like the word rendezvous or ballet, yeah, well, they're probably legacy French words. Thank you, French. In France, The French monarchy was controlled by the House of Valois, which held the crown until the late 1500s, where it was replaced by the House of Bourbon, which held the crown until the French Revolution. In England, the end of the Hundred Years' War kicked off a civil war within England known as the War of the Roses. And that's between two royal houses in England, the House of Lancaster and the House of York. Now this war is commemorated in Shakespeare's other play, Henry VI, and a key moment in the play is when characters have to pick either a white rose or a red rose, depending on which house they supported. The Lancasters used the white rose as their symbol, and the Yorks used the red rose. In the end, the War of the Roses basically ended at a stalemate, and it also ended the male line of both houses. And so a branch of the House of Lancaster, sort of a sub-branch, the Tudors inherited the throne. We will, of course, have to come back to the Tudors because the Tudors include Henry VIII, who is the English monarch who broke from the Catholic Church, and his daughter Mary, who is known as Bloody Mary, and his other daughter Elizabeth, who becomes Queen Elizabeth I and presides over a sort of English Golden Age. A lot of countries are about to have Golden Ages, in fact, including Spain, Portugal, France, and the Dutch, because one of these countries is about to discover the new world.